According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again for the last time now in the book of Deuteronomy. We are going to cover chapters 33 and 34, which will be the conclusion to the book of Deuteronomy. This is day 83 in the Through the Bible reading calendar. Moses blesses the people and dies. <laughs> Interesting title. Um, so we're, we're wrapping up Deuteronomy tonight. Then tomorrow night we're getting an introduction for Era 3. It's an introduction for uh, the, the weeks that follow as we introduce basically Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First uh, Samuel, the first eight chapters or so of First Samuel. So essentially Era number 3 in the, uh, let me pull this up here. Era number three, possessing the promised land. All right, that's the third era. So we've been dealing with era two, the birth of Israel, which basically took us from the exodus to the the verge of the conquest, essentially, from basically covering exodus through Deuteronomy. Uh, Prior to that was era number one that covered Genesis and Job, that was called Beginnings, that makes sense. Could call it Beginnings plus Job, but that was era number one. Era two is the, is the birth of Israel, that's the rest of the Pentateuch, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So that gets us through the first uh, 83 days of the year. We'll use day 84 as the introduction there for possessing the promised land. And basically it takes you from the conquest all the way up to uh, Saul as the first king. Uh, once you get into uh, Saul, David, and uh, Solomon, then you get into era four. This is how he, um, Ron Rhodes breaks it down. Uh, once you get to the United Monarchy, he calls that era four. So era three we'll be introducing tomorrow, and it's a pretty short one. It only takes us through uh, day 103. I think it's maybe the smallest of all the eras that we deal with. So stay tuned. And uh, come back tomorrow night for that. For tonight, Deuteronomy 33 and 34. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time in the truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you once again, thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the privilege that we have to assemble together. Thank you for this special year, Father, allowing us to come together for seven classes every week. Father, thank you for the abundance of teaching, also the abundance of prayer time, Father, with four weekly prayer meetings and then all of the fellowship uh, opportunities, and you just keep supplying grace upon grace. So, Father, we give you the praise and the glory. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, chapter 33 is called The Blessing of Moses. We already had his song. Uh, when we talk about the book of Deuteronomy, we have the five farewell messages plus a song plus a, uh, a farewell blessing. This is like deathbed blessing, uh, similar to how um, J- uh, Jacob did in Egypt when Jacob brought his sons in and, and pronounced his prophetic blessings upon the tribes. Uh, Moses likewise has prophetic utterance related to these, uh, these tribes that he's been shepherding for 40 years. So this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. And uh, he's going to effectively kind of do a a walkthrough a little bit as he reviews how faithful God has been with them from the Exodus and uh, onward. Moses' blessings upon the tribes of Israel, Deuteronomy 33 verses 1 through 25, is an interesting comparison study with Jacob's blessings upon the tribes of Israel from Genesis 49 verses 1 through 27. And I would recommend sometime just go ahead and put those up side by side, you know, get your Logos software running and put those two passages up side by side and just compare them and, and see the similarities and the differences tribe by tribe. The introduction paints a picture of Sinai that is only hinted at elsewhere in Scripture. So let's look at these first five verses here. Uh, starting with verse, uh, well, we already read verse one. Verse two, he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. 
Indeed, he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand, and they followed in your steps. Everyone receives of your words. Moses charged us with the law, a possession for the assembly of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, the tribes of Israel, together. All right, so a few interesting things there in those verses. Uh, maybe not the least of which is Moses referring to himself in the third person. <laughs> all right, awkward, but there you go, that's all right. Um, he's writing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and putting it in the canon, so uh, we, can, we can let that go. But some of these details, in particular the reference to the angels, which is interesting because we didn't necessarily have that spelled out so directly in, uh, in the record, particularly in Exodus, uh, but here we haven't mentioned these holy ones. And the multiple mountains, not just Sinai, but Seir and Paran, and then the, uh, the angels that were with him. So painting a picture that is only hinted at elsewhere. When you're reading Exodus 34, verses uh, 5 through 8, you can, you can catch a glimpse. Uh, he passes by. He announces his holiness. It's, it's terrifying. There's thunder. There's lightning. There's a fire. But it's not clear that those are angels until we have the, the commentary that says, oh yeah, by the way, those are angels. And we recognize that because of other passages of Scripture. He calls his angels uh, winds and his ministers are flames of fire. We have other quotations from the New Testament that talk about many of the things we think are uh, atmospheric phenomena, like, oh, maybe 14 tornadoes in Austin last night. You know, the things that, uh, that happen. Are those purely meteorological, astronomical phenomena uh, or are there angels involved? Do, do, do angels manifest as they walk through town uh, in tornado form? It is interesting to consider. Um, but yeah, Psalm uh, Exodus 34 verses 5 through 8. You don't necessarily see angels there in that context as you read it. Psalm 68 verses 15 through 18. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. So again, we have Sinai, we have Paran, we have Bashan, we have Seir, we have all these references to the mountains that are not only speaking of uh, you know, geological rock formations on the earth, but the spiritual powers that are located there. When Jesus was on the cross, he mentioned the bowls of Bashan that had surrounded him. So Bashan grabs our attention when we see it. Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks? at the mountain which God has desired for his abode. Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. So if there's tension in the angelic conflict, and we know there is, because there's the elect angels, there's the fallen angels, we find more often, or very frequently through the scriptures, we find that that tension is phrased in terms of um, envy, in terms of competition between the mountains, and one mountain looking at another mountain and, and the things there. And it's similar when Satan was grumbling about his placement. He didn't like the mountain where he was, he wanted to be on a different mountain. And uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 both talk about that. All right, the chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. Well, we didn't realize that. It wasn't mentioned in Exodus chapter 20. We didn't know that the chariots of, of Yahweh were surrounding them. But it shouldn't surprise us because later on we know there's stories like that with Elijah and Elisha when Elisha has to open up the servant's eyes just to see because the servant thought they were surrounded. And, and uh, Elijah says, no, wait a minute, we got them surrounded. What are you talking about? Open up his eyes to see the, uh, the chariots of the Lord. And so we have these glimpses here. He goes on to say, you have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, you have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this tonight, but just keep that passage in mind because this is this Psalm 68 text is what gets quoted in Ephesians. And we have subtle changes between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Is, is the Lord receiving gifts or is the Lord giving gifts? The emphasis in Ephesians is that he gives gifts like pastor, teacher, and evangelist and the gifts that he gives in Ephesians 4 for the building up of the saints, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service. But here he's talking about leading captivity captive and receiving gifts among men. And so that takes you into a whole realm of doctrine as well that we would love to expand upon, but we don't have time for tonight. 
when Stephen's preaching on this in Acts chapter 7, and his, he doesn't know it's his funeral message, but he's preaching this message right before they stone him to death. Um, he's talking about the Sinai episode. He says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. And then uh, verse 53 of the same chapter, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. This is the kind of the conclusion here when Stephen calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? You know, find a find an Old Testament prophet who died of you know in his sleep in a ripe old age. Most of them were persecuted and terribly abused. They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So these guys topped it all off. They were the worst of all. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Galatians 3.19 ordained the, the, Why the law then was added because of transgression or having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. And so we have these little glimpses of the angelic involvement at Sinai but it's not really explicitly spelled out until here I think in, these, uh, in this farewell blessing by Moses when he references this in uh, Deuteronomy 33. All right, so we get past verse 5 and we get to the tribes. Reuben's pretty short there with verse 6. May Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. Okay, <laughs> well that's pretty short. Uh, it, his, Reuben's blessing was to survive. And if you think that seems ridiculous and if you think it seems... Um, out of the question, you're going to be uh, interested to learn that it doesn't take very long in Israel's history after the, jo- after the Joshua conquest to get into the book of Judges, and one of the 12 tribes literally does go, or nearly uh, go extinct. Okay? It's not Reuben, but, but I don't spoiler alert, it's Benjamin. But we'll get there, okay? And one of these tribes almost goes extinct. And so this message here is, uh, I think it's pretty fitting. But compared to what he was told in, uh, in Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because he went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So when Jacob was giving the blessings on his deathbed, it was the announcement that that Reuben would not be the, uh, the leading tribe of the 12 tribes, even though he was biologically the firstborn. Judah is the one that's going to be the leading tribe of the 12 tribes. All right. Judah's blessing, when we get to 33.7. And this regarding Judah. So he said, hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. With his hands he contended for them, and may you be a help against his adversaries. Judah's blessing was to go forth in military victory and to hear the voice of Judah. Normally you want the tribes to hear the voice of the Lord. In this blessing, Moses is actually calling upon the Lord to hear the voice of Judah. That kind of flips it upside down, doesn't it? Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah and bring him to his people. I'm considering whether that first hymn actually is an anticipation of the coming Messiah. If that's a messianic reference to bring him to his people. If in fact we know that the Christ does come from uh, from Judah. Of course the message of, of Jacob in Genesis 49 was the one where we had the promise of, of the scepter and the promise of Shiloh and the, the very messianic promises there. Uh, the lion's whelp and the the uh, the leadership blessings that Jacob spoke of. All right, verses eight through eleven gives us Levi's blessings. So uh, Reuben gets a verse, Judah gets a verse, Levi gets four verses. Okay, but I guess that's Moses' favoritism. If <laughs> that was his tribe, right? So of Levi he said, "Let your thummim and your urim belong to your godly man, whom you proved at Massah." with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, 
who said of his father and his mother, I do not consider them. And he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. O Lord, bless his substance and accept the work of his hands. Shatter the loins of those who rise up against him and those who hate him so that they will not rise again. And that's pretty comprehensive. I like that. In fact, we got glimpses of things there that we don't have elsewhere in the Torah either and uh, things that we would not know otherwise related to the faithfulness of of the tribe that uh, certainly stands quite different from the faithlessness of the patriarch, okay? Don't don't get confused between Levi the person and Levi the tribe because Levi the person along with uh, Simeon, the two of them went in and had a huge massacre at Shechem and they did some some pretty evil things there and and, uh, that's why not only was the firstborn son but the second and the third were passed over to get to Judah, the fourthborn son who was promoted to to the leadership status. But Levi the person, Levi the patriarch, Levi the, the titular head of the tribe is different from the, the tribe itself. And evidently the sons of Levi in the early days of, of the Egyptian bondage and throughout the Egyptian bondage, in other words, between Levi and Moses, they, uh, they were faithful and they were serving the Lord and they were serving their fellow tribes. And, and uh, it's kind of an interesting little glimpse there's a passage in Malachi as well that speaks of, of Levi in a, in a very favorable way that um, I probably should edit in here and add to that point of study. I think it'd be good to put it there. All right, getting down to Benjamin now in verse 12. Of Benjamin, he said, May the beloved of the Lord dwell in security by him who shields him all the day, and he dwells between his shoulders. That's curious as well, since I mentioned in the book of Judges, Benjamin nearly does go extinct. But the fact that the, the prayer is for their preservation, for their security, in calling Benjamin the beloved of the Lord. I find that interesting because in uh, Jacob's prophecy, he was called a ravening wolf. And uh, pretty uh, ravenous wolf there in Genesis 49 27. And we think of the great. Uh, you know, ravagers of the Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin like King Saul or like uh, Saul of Tarsus and other examples there. But here he's called the beloved of the Lord, dwelling in security by him. And uh, interesting. And, and when the kingdom is divided after Solomon, Benjamin is the beloved of the Lord. It's the faithful tribe that stays close to Judah and remains in the, in, uh, the loyalty to the, to the southern kingdom. I think we can appreciate that. Joseph receives a lengthy blessing and highlights his fruitfulness. That's verses 13 through 17. And of course, Joseph is a double tribe. It includes both Ephraim and Manasseh. So, uh, Joseph. Of Joseph, he said, Blessed of the Lord be uh, his land, with the choice things of heaven, with the dew, and from the deep lying beneath, with a choice yield of the sun, and with a choice produce of the months and with the best things of the ancient mountains, and with the choice things of the everlasting hills, and with the choice things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Let him come to the head of Joseph, and to the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. As the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his. As his horns are the horns of the wild ox, with them he will push the peoples." All at once to the ends of the earth, and those are the ten thousands of Ephraim, those are the thousands of Manasseh. And let me tell you, there's a ton to unpack in that one, but it is curious when you see it is a twin message, it is directed towards both Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim is the dominant of the tribes, just in population and in in possessions and wealth and numbers of people. It's curious that Manasseh is the one that splits in half, that has half on the eastern side, half on the western side of the Jordan River, when you would think it would be Ephraim that would do that since they were so huge. Uh, But Manasseh was actually numerically smaller, and uh, to divide in half the way they did is is kind of an interesting feature of uh, of the land grants. All right, but then other things here too. I tell you, when you want to start doing some more advanced angelology and studies on these, the ancient mountains, the everlasting hills, 
you got to do something with that. You got to see what does the scripture do with that. And um, a couple other references here too make you wonder. Ephraim, by the way, serves as the titular head of the northern kingdom. When when those ten tribes, uh, very frequently they're called the northern kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of Israel, or sometimes they're just referred to as Ephraim. Just like Judah and Benjamin is sometimes just called Judah for simplicity's sake. The ten northern tribes are frequently called uh, Ephraim, again, for, free, uh, for uh, simplicity's sake. So then we, we move on to Zebulun. Zebulun and Issachar are linked together, both in this message and, I think, in, the, uh, in their future, in their fulfillments. Uh, of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going forth, and Issachar in your tents. So there's a contrast, a going forth and a homebody. <laughs> they will call peoples to the mountain. There they will offer righteous sacrifices, for they will draw out the abundance of the seas and in the hidden treasures of the sand. So what's this mountain about? What's this region about? What's their territory like? Okay, makes you wonder. You have to take a sneak peek. We've already had some of the land divisions already delineated, but we'll see more of it when, when they actually go and conquer and when the land gets divided in the book of, uh, of Joshua. But we've already had, in Deuteronomy, we had the, the map work done where the, the boundaries were established from south to west to, e- to north to east. So uh, you might recall the, uh, the, the location for Zebulun and Issachar were both to the north. Uh, uh, linked together in this text here. Similar in uh, Genesis 49, verses 13, 14, and 15, you have Zebulun and Issachar right there close together, uh, again, in the north. Zebulun will dwell at the seashore. He will be a haven for ships. His flank shall be toward Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. All right, so that's how Jacob put it in chapter 49. I think if I was in that tribe, I would like Moses' message better. (laughs) All right, but then again, we're not uh, picking and choosing the Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. There will be a song that's sung by Deborah and Barak in Judges chapter 5 that's going to uh, mention both Zebulun and Issachar together as well. So the linkages between those two tribes, okay, um, not an accident. And uh, we'll see more of that as we move forward through the Old Testament. We're also going to see how uh, those two tribes plus Naphtali really speak um, uh, in a lot of ways of the New Testament. They look forward to the ministry of Jesus Christ because their territories in the Old Testament are the, what later become known as Galilee or Galilee of the Gentiles by the time we get to uh, the New Testament. The blessings of Gad for enlarged territories as a response to Gad's faithfulness in battle. So this gets us to verses 20 and 21. Of Gad, he said, blessed is the one who enlarges Gad. He lies down as a lion and tears the arm, also the crown of the head. Then he provided the first part for himself, for there the ruler's portion was reserved. And he came with the leaders of the people. He executed the justice of the Lord and his ordinance with Israel. So it's interesting. I think Gad kind of punches up. Gad exceeds the expectations that you might expect from um, a lesser son, if you will. I think Asher and Gad, the, the happy and fortunate sons that they were, um, when, when, the, when their mothers were in competition to try to have the, the children that they were having, I think it's, uh, it's curious, the, um, not only the, the, the names that were given at the time and the rationale that their mothers put into it, but then I think the, the divine sovereignty at work when... Um, the, the concepts of, of happy and fortunate, um, they get adjusted when you're adjusted to the Word of God instead of just having an earthly competition with your sister. All right. And uh, anyway, there's probably more we can deal with on that. Uh, as far as what Jacob told uh, Gad, as for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. 
So again, it's a military uh, context related to uh, his victory. Dan. This is much more favorable than what happened in, in Jacob's message. Dan was called a, uh, a snake. He was called a serpent uh, in, uh, in jo- by uh, Moses in Genesis 49. But here of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp that leaps forth from Bashan. So a couple of things. The lion imagery, it's curious to me because the lion imagery, yes, Jesus owns that. Yes, lion imagery, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we have lion imagery connected to Judah constantly. But it's not the only lion imagery because our adversary also prowls about like a roaring lion. And we also have lions in a in a vicious context, okay? And I think this is what we can see with respect to Dan, uh, not only as a lion's whelp, but there's that phrase Bashan again, okay? The territory of Bashan that is always centered in uh, opposition to what Yahweh is doing on Mount Zion. At some point, I'm going to write a paper or present something related to uh, all of the usages of Bashan throughout the Old, Te- uh, Old and New Testament, and it's kind of interesting to put it all together in a in a uh, study. So Dan is a lion's whelp springing away from a serpent. There are there's actually uh, yeah I think there's a text critical question on that too. Trying to recall. Yes. Yes, okay. So there is a manuscript question with respect to the Bashan reference there. All right, not for tonight. More work for a later day. Naphtali is promised favor. Of Naphtali, he said, and by the way, can anyone here tonight name any famous Naphtaliite in the Old Testament? Somebody? I didn't hear that. Tell me your favorite Naphtali person anywhere in the Bible. Okay, see? I'm telling you. All right. Stay tuned. Of Naphtali, he said, Oh, Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, take possession of the sea and the south. Naphtali is promised favor or grace. In Jacob's prophecy, he was a doe. Genesis 49, 21. A view of the coming grace of Jesus Christ may be at work here as well. And this land of Naphtali, Isaiah 9, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. This this marvelous prophecy of Isaiah, right? Right there in the midst of all these other prophecies of a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and and, uh, all these other messianic messages that Isaiah has given, talking about the land of uh, Zebulun and Naphtali. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Isn't that beautiful? The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. It's a tremendous messianic prophecy, but it starts off here with the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So, not shocked at all that Naphtali gets the Mosaic message of favor here. Also, Matthew chapter 4, where that Isaiah text got quoted when uh, Jesus leaves Nazareth and settles in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Specifically saying this was prophetic fulfillment of that Isaiah passage. All right, Asher. The message to Asher. Of Asher, he said, more blessed than sons is Asher. May he be favored by his brothers and may he dip his foot in oil. Your locks will be iron and bronze, and according to your days, so will your leisurely walk be. Well, that sounds pretty good. I like that. <laughs> I don't know, locks of iron and bronze, is that complimentary? 
Some of this is hard. Our culture doesn't find, like when you read Song of Solomon and you find uh, where he's complimenting Shulamith with things that we would not view as compliments today. You have to kind of adapt it to the culture and, and, and accept it the way that it is. When Jacob was pronouncing his blessing in Genesis 49, he said, as for Asher, his food shall be rich and he will yield many royal dainties. So that seems to be favorable as well. So it's kind of neat. Uh, break yourself down a chart, just list the tribes, list the, the Genesis 49 message, list the, the uh, Deuteronomy 33 message, and just make yourself a little chart. And, uh, and find, you know, it's kind of nice if you get a thumbs up, thumbs up on both messages, you know, or, uh, you know, mixed messages maybe, or both kind of depressing messages, in uh, Dan's case perhaps. All right, and then uh, the conclusion. The conclusion to the song is a reminder that there is no people on earth like Israel. There is no God on earth like the one true God whom they serve. So Deuteronomy 33 verses 26 through 29. There is none like the God of Jeshurun. Remember what's the title of Jeshurun? It refers to Israel, but specifically Israel in prosperity. Israel under blessing is Jeshurun. And more often than not, Jeshurun blows it. They fail the prosperity test. That, uh, that uh, they tend to rebel, they tend to forget their God, they tend to come under judgment. And so, uh, but we take it when we come to it, like this case here, this is Israel under blessing. And so there's none like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in His majesty. I mean, he is nearby and he is ready to save. He is nearby and knowable. He is nearby and when you call upon him, he's there. He dwells in your midst. He's ready to march before you. He's ready to fight for you. And uh, there's, there's no God like him. The eternal God is a dwelling place. If you think about it, um, there are other gods, the, the created beings, the mighty angelic beings that are called gods, they're called Elohim, but there is only one uh, infinite eternal God that is the I am that has always been. There is only one I am that is without cause, without beginning, without creator. Uh, all those other gods are themselves created by God himself. So the eternal God is a dwelling place and under or a shelter and underneath are the everlasting arms. Yeah, or a refuge. Dwelling place or refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. How many of our hymns employ this language? They, they, they rip this verse right off the, 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 the text from this verse and they write about under the everlasting arms. And that's where we all should be. That's where we find our refuge in God Himself. He drove out the enemy from before you and said, destroy. When God says it, it happens, right? When God said, let there be light, there was light. Anytime God says, let there be, there is. When God says, destroy, and he's sending his, uh, his armies forth to conquer, it's, it's really um, pathetic what, uh, how little that they conquered in the days of Joshua. And uh, for all the achievements that they did, and they did, they were up against seven nations greater and mightier than themselves, yet their victory was far less than it could have been, should have been, what it would have been had they been fully obedient the way God told them to be. We'll tackle that as we get through the book of Joshua. So he drove out the enemy from before you and said, destroy. So Israel dwells secure in security. The fountain of Jacob is secluded in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also drip down dew. And Moses is actually speaking of this as if it's already a done deal, a completed action, as he uh, prophetically announces what God intends to accomplish. Not blessed are you, happy are you, O Israel. Remember I told you that I wrote a script, I wrote a, a, uh, a visual filter and I asked Logos, I said, find me every use of Asherah that you have. It comes from Asher, that means happy. Find me every use of Asherah where the New American Standard renders it as blessed and then cross off the word blessed and write the word happy in right after that. And so happy are you, O Israel. 
Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? So when you think of all the people groups that you can name from the Old Testament, we've met quite a few already. You meet a bunch of them in the Pentateuch, right? You have the Egyptians, you have the Canaanites, seven flavors of Canaanite. You've got Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite. You've got Girgashite. You've got all these ites everywhere. Hittites, okay? And with all those people groups, plus the ones that you learn later with, uh, with Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians and Greeks and Romans and, and all the rest, Name a people group that's like Israel. There isn't one. There is no people on the face of this earth that has had the Lord God be their God and dwell in their midst. So happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is a shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies will cringe before you and you will tread upon their high places. So that's the conclusion to the deathbed blessings. And I think the, uh, this question about who is like you, really, it's, it's sad how they forget this and sad how they, they should uh, identify this as being unique, as being a peculiar people, as not craving the need to be like the, the nations that are around them. But sure enough, they get to a point in their apostasy where they just decide their biggest problem is they need a king. And if they, if they had a king, then all the problems would be solved. And, and they need a king because all the nations around them have kings. And uh, so they start calling out saying, we need a king like all the nations around us have kings. And missing the whole point that they're not like all the nations. They are unique. They're supposed to be different. And then we're also going to see um, how often does the phrase come up in the book of Judges whereby in those days there was no king in Israel and yet you see the nightmare that they're that they had fallen into in their sin and their rebellion and their darkness. So thinking that the problem is they need a king to, to fix everything? No, the problem is you need to be humble before the Lord and quit rebelling and quit, quit turning to idols and false gods. And I think the tribes out, tried to outdo each other in how idolatrous they could become. I forget which one it is, but in, in about two weeks we're going to be in the book of Judges. We'll have a week of Joshua and then a week of Judges. And uh, eight messages for Joshua, seven messages for Judges. And I, I tell you, they outdo each other in, uh, in, in their idolatry. It's, it's crazy. All right, chapter 34 then, the death of Moses. Moses is given a panorama view of the promised land, the land that he's not allowed to enter into, but God sends him up another mountain and uh, lets him... Let's him scope it out. Moses, I tell you, 120 years old. He just had his birthday. We saw his birthday on Sunday where he turned 120. And uh, now he's ready to die. But boy, he went up a lot of mountains in his lifetime. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. Again, a lot of these mountains have multiple names. We're fine with that. Uh, but it's opposite Jericho. And as the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali and all the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev and the plain and the uh, valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And I hope we're getting used to these terms. We're going to see a whole lot more of them with the conquest. Like, wh- what is Negev anyway? And what is... What is um, Oh, there's other terms too. Arabah. There's other terms. We've got, we got to learn what these terms mean, okay? That rift, that rift valley that basically the Jordan River runs through, but that deep crevice rift that takes you from the Sea of Galilee through the Jordan River into the Dead Sea, even south of the Dead Sea, this rift that runs down to the Gulf of Aqaba, that it looks like a, a, a giant took an axe and just chopped a, a groove into the, into the earth. That's the Arabah, in case you were wondering. Negev is the region to the south, the southern arid regions that kind of nestled between the the hill country and the the wilderness of of Zin. All right. So that's what he gets to see. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So there you have it. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died. 
there in the land of Moab. And we saw on Sunday one of those chapters uh, where he was told to die and he was like given permission to die. And it's like, it's like he was able on command to just simply yield up his spirit, even maybe as Jesus did on the cross when he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. You know, once Moses had this panoramic view, he had permission to breathe his last and to physically depart his body at that point. It's not a command to, to commit suicide, it's a command to die, which uh, I think is, is an authority, a permissive will issue that uh, is pretty unique to, to Jesus and to Moses, the only ones I can find that are given that uh, blessing in, uh, in the Scriptures. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And God himself does the burial. Okay, because there's no pallbearers, there's no uh, funeral to preach, uh, none of that. He, that's the Lord, so it's according to the word of the Lord, and he, the Lord, Yahweh, buried him, Moses, in the valley, in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. So didn't bury him up on the mountaintop. Actually carted him away somewhere and buried him in this valley. Nobody knows where. But it's a valley in the land of Moab. It's opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. You know, imagine if Titus Kennedy or some archaeologist, you know, was to find this. And what a, I don't think God would permit anybody to find it or that they could identify it if they did find it because it's not marked. I'm sure God didn't put a marker in there anywhere saying, Congratulations, you found the tomb of Moses. So I think he just buried him. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. And if you think about it, Caleb and Joshua are the only two still living that, I mean, if you think about it, they're the only two, in fact, not even them, Everybody, including Caleb and Joshua, Moses has been their leader all their lives. Okay, I guess that you could say Caleb and Joshua could remember the slavery time period. They could remember when they were in Egypt. They could remember when Moses was the fugitive. But when Moses came back and stood before Pharaoh and said, let my people go, Caleb and Joshua are the only two that's still alive that remember that event, that walked through the Red Sea on, on dry ground. Everybody else in the nation on this occasion when they are you know, grieving for 30 days over Moses' death, he's the only leader they've ever known. He has been their national leader their entire life. That's just kind of, I don't know, it's mind-boggling to me to, just to consider on that basis. Is there anything comparable in, I don't think there's anything comparable in the, in the well, okay, that's not true. There's some Okay, when I was in uh, Uganda, I, uh, our driver in Uganda was telling us about their presidential elections. Because I think they've had the same, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess up the years and you can Google it and tell me I'm wrong, but whatever year it was that Idi Amin was finally overthrown, right? Um, and they had fair elections in Uganda for the first time in forever. When they got rid of the dictator Idi Amin, um, this guy who became their new president basically ran on the, on the uh, platform of, I'm not Idi Amin, <laughs> which was a winning platform. And he got elected, and he's been elected and re-elected and re-elected and re-elected the whole time. And, uh, and for my driver, he says, the only president we've ever had. <laughs> Your entire life? Yeah, the only president we've ever had. That's crazy. Anyway. So he was 120 years old, but his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. You know, he could probably run the, he could run up mountains better than the, the kids could and whatever, doing those obstacle course races and stuff with the teenagers and, <laughs> and all the rest. Okay, I think the Moses we have here is of a different sort. It is curious though, the New Testament has a commentary on this event. There's a detail that we have in the book of Jude. The book of Jude, verse 9, talks about an event of the death of Moses that's not recorded in Deuteronomy, not even hinted at. 
But Jude 9, Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses. So when God himself buried Moses, there was a lot going on in the angelic realm. And uh, the devil had plans for that corpse. You ever wonder why? Why is this lost? Why is this lost and dying world fascinated with zombies, with vampires, with the undead, with um, I mean, just consider what Satan can do, what demons can do, when they uh, you know when they take possession of bodies. Anyway, disputing and, and Michael the archangel when he was disputing with the devil, maybe Michael was the one that the Lord assigned to to carry the body from Nebo to the valley and whatnot. But even Michael did not dare pronounce against Satan a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So he had to call upon the name of the Lord. And maybe it was Michael and Yahweh himself that escorted Moses' um, body there because of the, the conflict with, uh, with Satan. Anyway, that's a warning that comes in the book of Jude. Um, it doesn't come from Deuteronomy. It doesn't come from the Old Testament. There is a uh, a snippet from an apocryphal book that's that's referenced here, the Assumption of Moses. Uh, also, Jude cites from First Enoch uh, has a couple of other allusions to um, ap- apocryphal texts that becomes a study of its own. Anyway, so Moses died and was buried by the Lord. Then Joshua succeeds Moses. Joshua succeeds Moses and writes the epitaph to the book of Deuteronomy. Even um, the, the conclusion here in verses 10 through 12. It's an epitaph for, the, for Moses. It's a conclusion to the book of Deuteronomy. It's really a conclusion to the entire Pentateuch, to the entire law of Moses, as we look at verses 10 through 12. So verse 9 tells us, Now Joshua the son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So you talk about big shoes to fill, but it was all done in public view and it was all done with a laying on of hands to identify, Moses was identifying that, that Joshua was his successor, that he was filled with the Spirit, and that uh, the sons of Israel are going to listen to him. Yeah, just about as well as they listen to Moses. <laughs> okay, which means they're going to rebel a lot uh, and, and Joshua is going to have to be patient and, and have to be firm, even as Moses was. And did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And you think about filling those shoes and following a legend and following uh, and then all the different things there on that. The um, I don't know. Why not, why not Caleb? Why Joshua? Why, Lord? I want to know. Caleb represented the tribe of Judah. Wasn't Judah the leading tribe? What's up with Joshua? Well, he'd been the attendant since his youth. And he had... Um, you know, his name was Jesus, <laughs> the Hebrew form of, of Jesus. So I guess, anyway, God knew what he was doing. Since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Since that time. Now, how many years later is this epitaph being written? Okay, we have little glimpses, and, and earlier we had references of to this day, things like that, that we have references. I'm going to be talking more about that tomorrow night because it, it really becomes critical in Joshua and Judges as we uh, can, can kind of pinpoint the authorship and the dating of those books with the years that have gone by since the events took place. But since that time, no prophet has arisen like Moses. That's important because Moses himself had a prophecy saying, a prophet like me is coming. A prophet like me is coming. And he had a messianic prophecy speaking of the, the arrival of, of, of God in the flesh, that, that God would become a man and, and, uh, and dwell among us. So anyway, uh, it has not happened from the point of time this epitaph is written. For all uh, the Lord knew face to face, for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land. So there will be other signs and wonders. In my, in my book, Parting the Jordan almost seems more miraculous than parting the Red Sea. Because the Red Sea, you know, yes, it's deeper, it's bigger, it's wider, but it's sitting there. A river is flowing. A river is coming to you from the north. And to part that 
to stop that flowing water from coming to you from the north, what's, what's it doing if it's not coming to you from the north anymore? How, how backed up does that get if you are parting the... And I don't know. I'm, I'm still wondering if, uh, and I've got one week to figure it out, if, um, <laughs> actually I got till Thursday night to figure it out when, because uh, we're going to get into Joshua 1 through 6 on Thursday. Um, you know, was it just a dimensional portal whereby the water flowed from here to here and left a gap in the middle? I don't know. This is where we get silly. We're trying to figure out the, the, the physics, the mechanics. How did he do it? Like, how did he create the universe? He did it. He said he did it. You know, you want to know how? How did the, you know, quit thinking in terms of physics and engineering. Just accept the miracle that God did it. But for all the amazing miracles Joshua does, like commanding the sun to stand still, that's pretty huge. He still says it doesn't measure up to Moses. I find that um, very humble on Joshua's part. I think it's the recognition that, uh, you know, I, I think a couple of Joshua's miracles, if they weren't greater than Moses, they were at least measured up. They were at least in the same ballpark, the same league. You can't really uh, diminish making the sun stand still. I mean, did the planet stop rotating? And then how did gravity keep working if the planet stopped spinning? I mean, what's going on? Anyway, all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants, all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. So we have the epitaph there. And it's not a big deal. We, um, we still accept Mosaic authorship on all five of books of the Pentateuch. Jesus said Moses was the author of the law. That's not a big deal if, if a later editor comes along and adds a, a note like this. That's very common in ancient literature, very common in biblical literature. Also, by the time these scrolls get copied over the centuries, they get updated with, with improved spellings, with updated spellings, with more recent names being added. If a town changes its name, sometimes those names get updated in later copies of the manuscripts. Plus, we know that the, the original uh, Torah was written in the proto-Canaanitic script. It then got uh, transcribed into the, to the Aramaic block letters after they came back from Babylon and adapted a whole new alphabet for their, for their language. Other things like that as well. Um, David didn't write the Psalms in, in the order from 1 to 150. Okay? He wrote them in, a, in a, all kinds of a different order. In fact, the earliest one was the one Moses wrote in Psalm 90. Well, then why did that get listed as number 90? Who put those 150 into the five books of Psalms that we have today? Okay? We're going to be talking about all of this. None of this is a problem. None of this, if, if you have a critic that's trying to cast doubts upon the reliable, reliability of the Bible and he's scaring you with stuff like this, just laugh at him and say, I'm not scared by any of that. that all of that is great, but we do have to be honest and admit that very frequently uh, evangelicals have had a, um, shall we say, a less than ideal definition of canonicity, a less than ideal definition of inspiration. And we need to be more inclusive in our inspiration definitions to not only include all Scripture as God breathed for the authors, but also God breathed and superintended by the Holy Spirit for the compilers, for the arrangers, for the editors. I don't want now. okay, I can call them editors. Um, but for the sanctified scribes and the work that they did to take a God-breathed text and to canonize it in its final scriptural form. And so that is a project that we'll be working on, uh, not only this year, but in the coming years, because I think there's good folks that are working on, on those precise kind of definitions that we need. And we can be thankful for that as well. All right, I've got six minutes left. I wanted to do one more thing before we wrap up tonight. And I told myself I would remember it. And now I have not. I was going to show you, oh yeah, I was going to show you a couple of features. So um, I mentioned, by the way, this, this blessed happy thing. Okay? If you want that, you can have that. And you can either write your own or you can use mine. You want to see how to do it? 
So when you're opening up Logos and you want to go to your documents and you can find your, under documents, you can find your visual filters. Now I've got thousands of documents, so that's way too many. But for demonstrations here tonight, I'm just going to go with, okay, I don't have thousands, I have hundreds. I'm going to highlight visual filters. So that removes your notes, that removes your prayer list, that removes your all the other kinds of documents that you can have. And it just limits now to the visual filters. And my blessed happy visual filter is this one here. Blessed happy. And so essentially this is a search of all the Bible in all passages also in all Bibles, not only the New American Standard, but any Bible in my library that has both the, uh, the Hebrew, the Greek, and English translations. At any point where the uh, Hebrew lemma of Asherah intersects with blessed, or the Greek lemma of um, Makarios intersects with blessed. Any time those criteria are met, then the filter that's applied is, uh, or the highlight that's applied is this one here. This blessed, happy, happy change where you're crossing off the word blessed and you're writing in the word happy next to it. So that's the, uh, the custom visual filter there. Okay? Now, that's how I have it. How are you going to get it? Well, you're going to do something similar. You're going to come up here to Docs. But instead of looking at yours, because I suspect if you have not used Logos very long, you may not have very many. You may have none at all. I hope you start getting more and more as you start taking notes, as you start adding verse lists, as you start adding Bible reading plans, you start adding all the things that you can add. But instead of yours, uh, go to the groups list. And then when you go to the groups list, you can come down here to the group. And again, my suspicion is if you're very new to Logos and if you're very new to faith life, my suspicion is the only group you're a part of is called Austin Bible Church. Okay, Because you created a faith life account, you followed the Austin Bible Church uh, listing, and now you're a member of the Austin Bible Church group. In that case you can select Austin Bible Church as your group. You can see I'm part of Dean Bible Ministries, Robert Dean Notes, Morris Proctor Seminars, uh, MP Seminars Online, Faith Life Equip, and Logos Search. So I've got a whole bunch of groups that I'm following as a part of my Faith Life subscriptions. But you'll just come here and you'll probably find Austin Bible Church is probably the only group that you have there. And then once you select that, all of the ones that I put in there, plus Daryl Dar put one in there. You'll find Daryl Dar added a, uh, a Bible reading plan. All right, but just look for the ones that I put in there, Bob Bolander, and look for visual filters. And there's the blessed happy one, okay? And because I've shared that with Austin Bible Church, you can uh, click it and then add it to your docs. When you add it to your docs, do you know what it does? It adds it to your docs. <laughs> so then you're going to find it over here under yours. And it's going to be all yours. And you'll be able to you'll show up in your Logos. By the way, you can do the same thing too if you like what I do with the Agapao Phileo contrast. All my Agapaos are green, all my Phileos are blue. Or maybe it's the other way around. All my agapaos and agapes are blue. All my phileo and philoses are, are green. Also, I shared one with the second person singulars and plurals in Revelation 2 and 3. Yeah, I shared a few visual filters there. Beyond the visual filters, you might want to have like the reading plans, the Ron Rhodes chronological reading plan. You might want to have the uh, church bulletin prayer list. The prayer list that you have every Sunday morning in the church bulletin, you can have that sitting right inside your Logos and, and, and pull it up in your, in your Logos software while you're studying each morning. How to pray for your pastor. In fact, everybody, go get that tonight. <laughs> Select it, add it to your docs, and it'll be listed there as one of your, uh, one of your prayer lists. 
I think the, um, oh, here we go. The numbers muster figures. That's a notebook. That's a notebook. Highlight that. Add it to your docs. And then you'll have the notebook available to you. What happens when you have the notebook available to you? Then the next time you're looking at the book of Numbers and the census figures in Numbers chapter 1, when you read the numbered men of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500, you'll have these purple checkboxes and you'll be able to hover your mouse over those purple checkboxes and you'll see the notes in there that we had gone through in class. What happens if you look at Elufim as uh, commanders or chiefs instead of thousands? And what happens if you look at Maoth as battle units instead of hundreds? Anyway, we'll have more on that too, by the way, moving on into the book of Judges when the warfare takes place with the tribe of Benjamin. Because there's big numbers there too. All right. Well, that wraps up era number two. We'll come back tomorrow night for era number three, and we're going to give an introduction to era three, possessing the promised land, covering the era from 1406 to 1050 BC, essentially the conquest to the to the first king. And uh, that covers Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and uh, the early chapters, of the first seven chapters of, uh, of 1 Samuel. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for truth and the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. Thank you for all of the blessings you provide for us day by day and moment by moment for the watch care as you protected over this congregation with all the tornado sweeping through last night. Father, uh, you are the faithful one and we give you the praise and the glory. We thank you, Father, again for through the Bible, continue to bring us through this year. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.